Hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen. I'm a barrister at Thurgeon and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And in this session, uh, I want to think with you about the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court as it relates to adults, because it's an area that I get asked about an awful lot, is it's legally complex and it's ethically complex. So I want to help you think through some of the core aspects of it with some slides and then show you where you can find more resources at the end. As always, what this is, is not legal advice on the facts of any individual case. So here goes. Inherent jurisdiction, what is it and when not to use it, or when to use it, when not to use it. So what are we thinking about? What are the, I want to sort of start with a situation where one might be thinking about the inherent jurisdiction as it relates to adults before drilling into, drilling into what exactly it is. I'm emphasising adults here because there is a specific uh, role of the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court in relation to children that is well developed, but I don't want to talk about here. The more complex area is in relation to adults. So kind of two key situations. So somebody appears to be at risk from other people or they appear to be uh, at risk posed by their own circumstances, for instance, self-neglect. And the person appears to have capacity to make the relevant decisions. So let's just crystallize this with an example. Some of you might be familiar with the concept of Tuesday friends. So for instance, this is an example of a situation where somebody say with mild learning disability or autism receives their benefits on a Tuesday. They go to the pub, at least when it's possible to go to the pub, and they buy rinds of drinks for people on a Tuesday when people descend on them. The person buys some drinks and then they just, the, the, the people they buy drinks for don't appear for the rest of the week. Now what's going on there? Is this financial exploitation of somebody who doesn't appreciate that they're being financially exploited? Or is this somebody making a conscious choice that they recognise that they might have a relatively limited social life and actually they don't mind. They don't mind that they may only see these people once a week and actually they recognise that to some level they're being exploited but they're making a trade-off in their own minds. I can't tell you which way that uh, side of the, which side of the coin we're in, uh, but what I can say is that's a sort of example where if it's said the person appears to have capacity to make relevant decisions, we might then be thinking about the inherent jurisdiction. Because the inherent jurisdiction is, as the Court of Appeal described it in the DL case, we're actually talking about an older case, but reiterating is, the idea of the great safety net. So in other words, I sometimes describe this as the ability of the High Court to do whatever it needs to protect somebody where it's not barred from doing so by statute, because if statute covers the area, a piece of written down legislation covers the area, High Court can't exercise its great, its great safety net to fill in the gap. Or it can't exercise it because it's been told by a higher court that actually know this is how you have to do things. So it's a the ability of the High Court to fill in gaps in pieces of legislation to protect individuals. And for a long time after the Mental Capacity Act came into force, it was thought, well, maybe the Mental Capacity Act completely covered the zone that we might be talking about. So in other words, Parliament had said, either you lack capacity to make relevant decisions, in which case best interest decision-making kicks in, or you have capacity, at which point I'm afraid there is nothing to, that we can do. And the Court of Appeal said, no, we're not prepared to stand by in every situation because the person has got capacity if they appear to be vulnerable and appear not to be able effectively 
to make their own decision to protect themselves. Now, many of you I know might be listening to this and wondering about the word vulnerability. It's a word which is not uh, used in, for instance, the CARE Act, where they're very firmly moving away from the idea of vulnerability, but to the idea of somebody being at risk. The High Court, though, the courts, though, have stayed with the concept of vulnerability and they've maintained the scope of the idea of people who might be thought to be vulnerable. And I've given you a bit of a quote there from a, a decision which predated the Mental Capacity Act and still is referred to a decision of Mental Justice Mumby in a case called RE-SA. Re and that's vulnerability where the person may not lack capacity for purposes of Mental Capacity Act, but they appear to be under constraint or concert, coercion or undue influence or for some other reason deprived of the capacity, really the ability to make the relevant decision. So not mental capacity, but the ability to make the decision or in some way prevented from making a free choice. So the traditional idea of the inherent jurisdiction as it's developed has been this idea, I'm not able to exercise my will because somebody else is coercing me. So that's the kind of core area. There are some complexities around the edges, but that's the core idea. So some of the things which really need to be thought about, and I just want to really touch on these and then develop them very briefly, but really briefly, because this is a complex area, but I just want to flag up a series of questions for anybody who might be thinking about the inherent jurisdiction. Does the person actually lack capacity to make material decisions? Is there something else which can be done to secure the interests of the person or in some instances, the interests of others. Is the intervention actually necessary and proportionate? Is the person going to be deprived of the liberty? Are you actually trying to get orders against the person themselves? Are you trying to target the individual who might be subject to coercion? Or are you going after the perpetrators of, in what probably is the case, may well be abuse? So those are kind of some core questions. Let's just think briefly about each of them. Now, one of the things I want to just flag is that mental capacity and vulnerability operate in a complex way here. You will have seen, if you want to know more about capacity, I've done a Shed and R series, Fundamentals on Capacity. Please go and look at that if you want to think more about mental capacity. But one of the things I mentioned here, and one of the things which is really important in this zone legally, is that there's the need to identify, is the reason that the person can't make the decision for instance, to keep seeing the individuals appear to be financially exploiting them. Is that because they've got an impairment or disturbance in their mind or brain? Is it there's something wrong with their mind or brain, which means they can't, for instance, appreciate, they can't use in a way the information they're being exploited? Or is the reason that they can't make the decision because of the influence of the third party? And I've given you some case law references there, but it comes down to that critical question. Now, this is one of those areas where, frankly, the law is clear, but how that law is applied in, in reality is much more complex because how do you necessarily distinguish what's going on? Is the driving thing the influence of third parties or is it the thing that's wrong with the, 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 the person themselves or wrong with their mind or brain? One way of thinking about it, which sort of squares the circle and in some circumstances might mean that the right thing to do with thinking about a mental capacity act is, can the person understand, retain, use and weigh the fact that the other person may have interest contrary to theirs and may be exploiting them? And if they can't retain the information or use and weigh is really quite often where it comes in, is that inability because of, for instance, learning disability or dementia? 
And one of the things I would like to say is that from my perspective, it is quite important sometimes, always important to think very carefully about lung capacity. And there may well be circumstances where it's appropriate to take a relatively broad view of mental capacity here, because then there's a very clear statutory framework within which decisions can be made on a best interests framework. But if you do take that relatively broad approach to effectively saying, well, I think this person actually falls within the scope of the mental capacity because they can't process the fact they're being exploited, it is absolutely critically incumbent upon you then to use the best interest framework to find out ways in which to develop and support that person so that they can support their own decision making and they can, for instance, be protected from the influence of the third party and regain their true autonomy. So if you're taking a broader view of capacity, it's incumbent upon you, not then simply to go, well, I'm going to do best interest decision making and do what's easier for me if I'm a professional. That completely is the wrong way of looking at it. But capacity and vulnerability, as I say, interacts complexly here. Critically, is there another legal mechanism you can use? As Mr. Justice Leaven said in, in, a J, in the JK case, you can't simply use the inherent jurisdiction to reverse the outcome under a statutory scheme which deals with the very situation in issue on the basis that the court doesn't like that outcome. So you couldn't reverse an outcome that you can't achieve under the Mental Capacity Act simply because you don't like the outcome. But also there are other statutory frameworks which may well be relevant in other situations which you need to look at first to identify whether they can cover the situation. Because if they do, it would be wrong and the court could not use the inherent jurisdiction to reverse what Parliament has said should happen under the statutory scheme. I've just flagged up there a few examples of other statutory schemes which might cover some of the areas of, um, for instance, um, uh, 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 various forms of domestic abuse or situations of exploitation. So, for instance, the, there's the potential offence of coercive and controlling behaviour under Section 76 Serious Crime Act. There's the Protection from Harassment Act 1997. There are domestic violence protection notices orders. I don't want to go into them in detail. I just wanted to flag where Parliament has set up a regime which has said this is how we're supposed to protect individuals in different situations. That's where people need to look first not to the inherent jurisdiction, because the inherent jurisdiction is there to fill in gaps. Critically, is the intervention which the court is being asked to make, the High Court is being asked to make, necessary and proportionate? There's a really important case, London Borough of Croydon and KR, where Mrs Justice Leaven reiterated the importance of thinking about necessity and proportionality. Um, Emphasise two things. Proportionality has to be gauged against what it is that you're trying to secure. Are you trying to secure, for instance, the person's right to life? Well, if you're trying to do that, that weighs very heavily in the balance on the one side and might lead to more draconian interventions. Are you trying to secure their well-being? Are you trying to secure them against financial abuse? A bit like in relation to best interest decision-making under the Mental Capacity Act, where you always have to have regard to whether there's a way you can achieve your purpose in a less restrictive fashion, Interventions under the inherent jurisdiction proportionality requires you to think about the purpose and then think about what else could you try which might not work or has not worked. And the critical point is the more draconian the step that the court is being asked to make, 
the more evidence that it needs to show why it is justified in human rights terms to intervene, for instance, in the person's Article 8 right to private and family life. Is the person going to be deprived of their liberty? Now, this is an area where actually the courts, I'm afraid, just don't really quite agree. The individual judges find it difficult to come to a concluded view here. Some judges are more willing to countenance the idea that you could use inherent jurisdiction to deprive someone of their liberty if they have a mental disorder. If they don't have a mental disorder, it's simply you can't do this. Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights has an exhaustive list of circumstances when you can deprive someone of their liberty. In this, this context, the only one which could be relevant would be on the basis of, and I'm afraid I have to use this term here because this is what appears in the ECHR, unsoundness of mind mental disorder. But even if the person has got a mental disorder, judges find it challenging to envisage how it is that you can use deprivation of liberty in a way which is facilitative rather than dictatorial. Because the Court of Appeal in the DL case, when it reiterated the inherent jurisdiction exists as this great safety net said, it should be used in such a way as to enhance what rather than breach the individual's rights. And some judges find it, and I have to say, I personally also find it slightly challenging to see how you can say, I'm depriving someone of their liberty in such a way as to facilitate their decision making. I can see an exception, and for instance, the Court of Appeal also can in a case called BF, the idea that there might be a necessity to do something temporary under the inherent jurisdiction while investigations are going on, in particular as to whether or not the person really has got the capacity to make a relevant decision. And there might be a limited and temporary measure required to deprive the person of their liberty but on a very temporary basis. A more sustained deprivation of liberty is really quite challenging to envisage, especially if the person has got capacity. Because if you're depriving individuals of their liberty with unimpaired decision-making capacity, you do have to wonder at that point why we bother with the Mental Capacity Act at all. Is the order going to be directed against the person? The Court of Appeal certainly envisaged in DL that orders would generally be directed against the perpetrators of, for instance, abuse. And that certainly squares with how statutory screens operate. You never, for instance, in a domestic abuse context, you never target the victim or the alleged victim. You always target the perpetrator. And the courts are really cautious about the idea that you could ever say, well, it's important to make sure that the victim of potential abuse is subject to orders. And in a case called Redcar and Cleveland Borough Council versus PR and others, Mr. Justice Cole emphasized both that, that, that need for caution. And also, if you're gonna make an injunction against the individual, the victim, in other words, an injunction saying you must not do X, Y, and Z, and if you do that, you could be in contempt of court and you could potentially be fined and potentially go to prison. It's extremely important to understand make sure that the person understands the purpose of that injunction, will receive knowledge of it, and can appreciate the effect of the breach of that injunction. And if they can't fulfill all of those things, you shouldn't even be asking for an order directed against them. I would also say there's a certain complexity in the idea that on the one hand, you could be asking a court to say, make sure this individual doesn't do something temporarily, because they're not acting of their own free will, they're under the influence of somebody else. But on the other hand, make an order saying, make an injunction saying they mustn't do this, which you can only make 
if they're capable of appreciating and acting upon that injunction. The two don't sit very naturally. It is a complex area. Uh, this has been a whistle-stop tour. And if you want to know more about it, and if you want to know quite a lot more in a lot more detail than some of the practicalities, there's a guidance note we did in my chambers, Thirteen Essex Chambers, to the inherent jurisdiction. You can find at the top link there, thirteenandessex.com resources and training slash mental capacity law. It is a complex area. And one of the things is it's complex ethically because we're in a zone where we're saying, we think this person has got capacity to make the decision, but we're nonetheless asking a court to do things potentially in respect to the individual themselves, but also potentially to other people. And that is an ethically challenging aspect. You might find some other ethical stuff, if you're thinking about the ethics here, there's a book I co-wrote with Dr. Camilla Kong called Overcoming Challenges in the Mental Capacity Act, which really thinks about this. It's in the context of the Mental Capacity Act, but it's in the context of capacity and vulnerability. And one of the things it talks about is this idea that there may be circumstances where it's appropriate and it's legally correct to identify a broader concept of capacity. In other words, the person in a complex social situation or the spider's web, as it was described by one individual, actually at the subject part of the proceedings. It's appropriate to find a broader conception of incapacity to say that actually they lack capacity to take the relevant decisions. But on the other, if you do that, you have an ethical imperative to take steps in the name of their best interests, which are designed to secure them their real autonomy, their real ability to make decisions with proper support around them. So that's that book there. And then there are various other resources. I would just flag my website, mentalcapacitylawandpolicy.org.uk, which you may have already found because this webinar series is located on it, but it has a whole host of other resources. Um, and then finally, my Twitter handle, at Capacity Law, uh, and my email address is on, on the slides as well. You're very welcome to contact me. I'm afraid I can't give you advice on the facts of individual cases. I'm always happy to point you to guidance. Thank you very much for listening and good luck applying this rather ethically complex area of the law.